to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is a podcast that shares conversations with researchers with cool and insightful ideas, practitioners who have outstanding applications, and authors who gather all the best thinking into their writings. And Kurt and I do it while having a lot of fun. Yes, we do. And we've published more than 190 episodes of these fantastic conversations since we started a little over three years ago. And we are creating an event that is going to let you experience the fun that Tim and I experience every time we talk to a guest. And you're going to get it firsthand. It's called Nudge It North. And it's a one-day virtual conference that will happen on January 8th. 2021. And it will give you the opportunity to interact with some of our favorite speakers directly. Yeah, Nudge It North is going to be a great conference, Kurt, with keynote speakers, including Annie Duke and Robert Cialdini. Yep, you're talking about two of our all-time favorite guests on decision-making and on persuasion. Oh, yes, I am. And they're not going to deliver boring PowerPoint presentations. What? No, they are going to be sharing their brilliant ideas in a fireside chat, and they're going to answer listeners' questions. Wow, a real fireside chat? Are there going to be a fireplace and everything? We're working on that. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, Tim, but one of the coolest keynotes we've got going is when we talk with Gary Latham and John Barge together. John and Gary are good friends, and they are leading researchers on priming in the world. We can't wait to hear them bounce ideas off of each other and once again respond to your questions. Yeah, Nudge It North is going to be a fantastic one-day experience. And as a listener of Behavioral Grooves, uh, you can get a special discount off the ticket prices by using the code GROOVES when you go to www.nudgetnorth.com. So just go out to www.nudgetnorth.com and use the code GROOVES to get a special listener discount. This is going to be great and you will not want to miss it. Everyone should sign up. Just join us right now. It's going to be fantastic. And so we should probably talk about our guest for this episode. You think so? All right. Joel (laughs) Weinberger is a professor of psychology at Adelphi University with a postdoctoral training at Harvard with the renowned motivational guru, David McClellan. Joel is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Sciences and of the American Psychological Association. His research has focused primarily on unconscious processes, and he has a lot to share with us on this topic. He sure does. Joel is the author of Unconscious, a book that addresses the history of psychological development around the topic of the unconscious. And he is the founder of a consulting firm where he helps political campaigns, nonprofits, and businesses discover what consumers unconsciously think and feel about their candidate, product, or brand. His political commentaries have appeared in a variety of media outlets, including the Huffington Post, Anderson Cooper, and even Good Morning America. Yes, and it's worth noting that Joel was referred to us by John Barge, and in turn, Joel referred us to Roy Baumeister, two episodes we think that you should check out. Yeah, definitely. And lastly, I'd like to add in that in addition to his teaching, writing, and consulting, he's a practicing clinical psychologist and the author or co-author of roughly 100 publications. I think he's just another classic underachiever. No doubt. We get those all the time on this show. All right. And we have to say this. Joel is an amazing guy, generous to a fault, self-deprecating, well beyond the norms. And he has this way of making you feel like you're the most important person in the room whenever he talks to you. Yeah, we thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with Joel. And we hope you do too. Yes. So sit back, 
relax, and enjoy a very unconscious walk through our conversation with Dr. Joel Weinberger. Joel Weinberger, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're glad to have you. So let's start with the speed round. Joel, coffee or tea? Coffee. All right. If you had to pick between dinner with your favorite sports figure or favorite musician, which would you pick? Oh, that's a tough one. Sports figure, I'd have to say. Okay. Emanuel fanatic, so. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Okay. Would you prefer to be expert in a new language or to master a new instrument? Uh, language. All right. Okay. Okay. Should a book have more than or less than 50 pages of references? <laughs> I'm an academic. 100. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, and, and we bring that up because we are, we were impressed. So we, we, Tim and I have both read your, your book unconscious. Uh, and, and you have 60 pages of references in, in, in this book, and they're fantastic. So it's always one of the things that we look at, just to, to, to say that. But uh, with that, let's, let's talk about unconscious uh, a little bit. So give for, for our listeners a little bit about what you're trying to achieve with this book. What, what was the impetus for it? Okay, there's, there's, a, there's an historical impetus, and then there's an intellectual impetus. Uh, way back in the day when I was a grad student, I think that was uh, during World War One or something. <laughs> uh, I'm sitting in in, the, in a class, and the teacher announces there's no such thing as unconscious processes. He can prove it. He wrote a chapter about it, and I remember sitting there going, "He's crazy." I'm sitting in a class with a crazy person, <laughs> and uh, he then proceeded to empirically demonstrate this to the class. And I started to wonder why would I don't care about the research he's citing. He has to know this. Everyone has to know this. So why do people believe that? So that started me looking at the historical and philosophical reasons as to why people don't believe it. Then I actually became a psychologist and did some clinical work and the unconscious uh, is central to that. And I did some research and I got interested in the unconscious. And what I found was there's all of these areas that study unconscious processes but they live alone. They don't talk to each other. Clinical psychologists do not typically read cognitive science, neuroscience, or social psychological research. Those fields do not think about uh, the applications of their work to uh, clinical uh, uh, psychotherapy uh, outcomes and so on. In fact, uh, they don't think about business applications. They don't think about political. Everybody is talking to themselves and I thought, uh, well, I, I, I kind of see patients. I kind of do research. Uh, I'm, I'm, I know a little bit. Maybe, maybe I could have them talk to each other. And so I wrote this book. Maybe that's a little grandiose, but uh, with, with Valentina Stosheva. And uh, so we tried to do that. We tried to get all the areas that talk about unconscious processes, give it a common vocabulary in the hopes that someone would actually read it <laughs> and then uh, be able to talk to one another. Well, you started off with this history, I mean, going back to philosophers and talking through, uh, you know, some of the, the, the ancient history of, of all of this. So, you, you obviously have done your research. What, uh, if you had to point to a piece of this book that you think people would be most surprised about, what, what do you think that would be? 
I think they would be surprised that the existence of the unconscious was denied for so long and then minimized after it was denied. And, and I hope have the same experience I had in that first grad school class. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, you, you don't you, don't, you I guess you're, it's unconscious that you don't know that there's an unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you because, go. Uh, how, how could you, you know that you do stuff without thinking about it. If nothing else, you know, you drive your car without thinking about it. Uh, don't you think, uh, and, and animals do stuff without thinking and you're somehow as higher order of being than only you think about stuff, only you are cognizant, only you are rational. So I think that that, that surprised me and I would imagine and hope that it would surprise others. Well, fast forward to 2020. Uh, to what degree do you think that there are unconscious deniers out there? I think that still most people are unconscious deniers. Uh, you, you, you have people that say, for example, you know, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Um, really? Um, or I'm colorblind. And when someone says, I, I, got, I stole this joke from The Daily Show, how do you drive? How do you know when the light is red and green? Uh, <laughs> so so um, I, I think a lot of people think that, that they're unaware of their biases, they're unaware of their predilections, and knowledge is power. And if you're unaware of it, it's going to have power over you. Uh, and and I, I believe that most people still, even if they give lip service to the unconscious, will not admit that most of their functioning is, is, uh, takes place unconsciously and is controlled unconsciously, which is not a bad thing, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, I just want to, uh, to say that you are a psychoanalyst, you are a researcher, you are a political advisor, you do, you work in all these realms, you work with businesses. And I think it's fascinating that you've taken this very seriously, this whole idea of bridging all these different communities. You aren't sitting on the sidelines, just casting stones. You're in it. You're, you're actually uh, uh, doing these things. And I, I think that that's just particularly cool, I guess, from a perspective of putting your money where your mouth is. Thank you. I, uh, I sound more impressive than I am. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm technically not a psychoanalyst. I didn't go to a psychoanalytic institute. However, I, I do know a little bit about it and I've studied it and I can hang out with them and they won't know that I didn't go to an institute. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you talk the right lingo. Is that, is that how that works? Yeah, so switch conversations. It, one of you have done research with with David McClellan, who yeah. again is one of the powerhouses in in this realm. Uh, tell us a little bit about about what a what what was that like working with with David, and then um, you know what was some of the research that you guys were, were working on. <laughs> well, David was a hero of mine before I began working with him. So I, oh, that isn't that great? You get to you know work with cool. your heroes, right? Yeah. Unbelievable. So, so I remember my, he interviewed me. I did a postdoctoral fellowship with him and we were sitting at the Harvard faculty club and he's talking to me and he's, and I didn't hear anything he said. I just came out. I'm talking. <laughs> See that I'm talking. That's David McClelland over there. And he's talking to me and interested in me and I'm interested in, and he actually wants to hear what I have. And then I finally realized, oh wait, I have to answer him. <laughs> in the moment here. Um, so, what he was, was he had an idea minute. I've never seen anything like it. It just, they just poured out of him. The creativity was incredible. I love the man. I think that comes through. What was it like working with him? Uh, he, he had an incredible ability to take everyday experience and find a way to, uh, to study it and make it empirical. 
And then he had an incredible ability to look at data. This is, he, he came up before the era of computers and computerized analyses. He would just take data and stare at it, take it home. And he'd come back with all kinds of relationships that there was no way I could see, could have seen. Um, he was interested in a million things. Uh, he, he was, he became religious later in life. So he taught himself ancient Greek so he could read the gospels in the original. I mean, just on and on it goes. Wow. So, uh, and he was very supportive. Uh, he said, what do you want to do? How can I provide resources? Uh, I, we could have the whole, uh, podcast about him. I, I love him. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, his work on motivation is it, it's, it, it stands at the top of the mountain. It's just really amazing work. There was a Nobel prize in psychology. He would have won it for, for his stuff on the, the, the development of economics in terms of achievement motivation. It just goes on and on. It was, yeah. Amazing. I mean, achievement, motivation, power, yeah. motivation, affiliation, yeah. all of those where you, you think about how much that has influenced subsequent research, but just our understanding of, of why we do what we do, I think is just one of those, uh, seminal, you know, researchers that, that took the, the study of psychology as, as well as, um, you know, touching on a number of other fields to that next level, I think. And that, that's, that's really fascinating. And, and to your point, I, I'm, I loved your, your, conversation where you're going, I, I'm, I'm here with Dave McClellan. Oh, I have to answer the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that's, that's fun. I have a question that's been burning since you and I first talked. And uh, the name of the book is The Unconscious. <laughs> okay. The, uh, I, I often hear a term subconscious. Yeah. What is the, is there a difference between unconscious and subconscious you, you you do talk about this a little bit in the book but can you describe the difference between unconscious and subconscious to me there is a difference uh, many people use it interchangeably sub means below and mm -hmm. uh, th there's uh, there's an associative network that gets triggered in people when you say below so sub makes it less than uh, more mysterious than un just says it's what's not conscious I think it's descriptively more accurate. <laughs> Uh, in, in academia, they like to use the word implicit because, God forbid, you should have any associations that, that have uh, affective value to anything. Um, and, in fact, there's a story with Dave McClellan, if I could tell it. We wrote a paper that came out back in 1989, and we used the words conscious and unconscious in the paper. The reviews came back, and essentially, uh, David, having been in the field for a while, it didn't bother. I was ready to end my career and, and <laughs> you don't deserve to live. Your paper is terrible. You should find another uh, field of inquiry. And so I, I'm looking at the review. David reads it and he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, go to the, um, the computer and change the word unconscious to implicit. That, that term hadn't existed very much until then. And change the uh, word conscious to self-attributed. I said, what, why? And he said, it's not my first rodeo. Do what I'm telling you. <laughs> so I did it. And we sent it back. And now comes a new review, Tour de Force. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I wish I was making this up. And, and it's, uh, it's now one of the most widely cited papers in the field. It's got, uh, I don't know, 1,000 citations, 900-something cites. And, you know, we may have changed another sentence here and there. But basically, that's all we did. Uh, unconscious to implicit, conscious to self-attributed. Because the reader said, unconscious, that means Freud. This is stupid. Mm. Uh, and subconscious, I think, is another way of getting around Freud, because in academia, Freud is very controversial at best. Yeah, but but you're a fan. You're I'm right. A fan. Yes, I yeah. am a fan. 
Yeah, and, and why is that? What, what, give us a, a, a defense of, of Freud. Okay, so, so the first defense is that he died in 1939. So people will say, oh, look what he said. And, and yeah, well, go find me a biologist in 1910 and cite it as if it's now. So that, that's number one. Then, then now keeping that in mind, so he wrote a paper, uh, well, first, The Interpretation of Dreams, Chapter 7, is an actual model of the mind that uh, people reinvented, you know, uh, 70, 80 years later. And then his 1923 paper, I'm sorry, I'm getting academic on you. No, that's perfect. That's okay. okay. 15 papers called The Unconscious, hence, hence my book, um, where he demonstrated there has to be an unconscious. How can you say there isn't? Otherwise, when you when you uh, go from a stif- some stimulation or experience to behavior, how'd you get there? And And he just explains it all. And then he has... He realizes after a while that he was wrong, that there's a conscious and an unconscious, rather that everything is partly conscious and partly unconscious. And the field is only getting there now. Mm. So he gets he gets ripped on because he wasn't adequately scientific. Well, yeah. again, he died in 1939. Then he gets ripped on because he was wrong in some areas. Yeah, okay. So now tell me the physicist that wasn't wrong in 1939. And, and on and on it goes. And so uh, I think that he was a visionary, maybe not the greatest scientist that ever lived, but so what? Uh, he achieved something. He integrated science and, and romantic kinds of thinking, you know, with this, all this unconscious stuff going on that comes from God or nature or whatever. And he made, a, he made sense of it. And then he combined it with, with a way of thinking positivistically. I just think it was amazing. Well, and, and and he brought psychology to the forefront of of common culture too. And 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 again, granted, I think there's been a lot of misattribution of of things around that and, and misunderstanding of that. But to a degree, for however many years, that's what people you know heard about and 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 studied. So I think there's a there's a part of that that I think he probably gained a lot of people interest in into this whole field and. Uh, just really studying, you know, why we do what we do. I think that's a really interesting and positive aspect of that. I agree. And I also think that's one of the reasons he gets ripped on because uh, oh. they shouldn't be studying him. They should be studying me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely. Uh, if, let's turn the page, if we could, to uh, some of your political work. Uh, we, we're we're coming into a campaign cycle, and uh, you've done a lot of work on the unconscious uh, and uh, – you know, subliminal uh, messaging in in political advertising. What do you think we should be looking for? What what as as we're coming into this, are there are there things that candidates should be employing, or things that we as uh, voters uh, should keep our eyes open for? I think now, particularly, uh, even more so than previous elections, although it was always the case. Is, is that uh, elections turn not on rational issues and discussions. Uh, they turn on emotional issues and, and uh, associations that people have. And now that we're living in this kind of uh, binary world, uh, I, I think that's even more so the case. So, so um, what would I say? Look, look for what they're alluding to rather than what they're saying directly. I mean, hmm. a mask has become political. So don't wear a mask, wear a mask. We could have a discussion about that. But, uh, you know, I was walking in my neighborhood the other day and a a neighbor of mine who I I know kind of were friendly and says, why are you wearing a mask? He knows why I'm wearing a mask. Kind of stupid question is that? 
And, and uh, what he was really saying was you have now, which is an assumption that may or may not be correct. You have now indicated a political stance to me and let's have a fight about politics. And I said, I'm wearing a mask to protect you, Mm -hmm. which was not the answer he was expecting. I I Ah. suspect. And, and um, then we became friendly after that. So I think, a lot of these things are going on where, where people have these pre-existing. Drew Weston, who is a, a, my partner in the business side and wrote a wonderful book called The Political Brain, you should interview him, um, did a study with an MRI where he presented people with the opposite political point of view from what they profess. And the part of the brain that lit up was the emotional part of the brain, not the rational part of the brain. Yeah, People now feel attacked. They don't feel like, oh, what a nice question. Let's have a discussion. They say, oh, you have attacked me. I must now defend myself. And anybody who's had a political argument knows this. The other person is a moron. Uh, They don't understand your rational and sensible point of view. Uh, How can this possibly be that they disagree with you when you're so clearly right? And they feel the same way. And you've never convinced anyone in your life of a point of view that's different than your own politically. Because it's not held rationally and logically. It's it's held irrationally and, and emotionally. So I think start looking for, for the emotional connections that people are trying to make or trying to sever. Uh, look for attack ads. Attack ads work better than positive ads. Um, one side seems to understand that. One side seems not to understand that. But that's just true. And it's true for a reason. It's not randomly true. We're, we're more attracted to negativity and danger than we are to safety. And if you think about it, I'm sorry if I'm going on and on. You can interrupt me. It, it makes sense. So, so. Let's, let's uh, go back in time to our ancestors on the African savannah, and they see something dangerous. If they don't notice it, they're going to die. They're going to become leopard lunch or, or, or crocodile snack or whatever it is. <laughs> if, they, if they miss something positive, they're going to go hungry or miss a nice, interesting, fun experience. So what are we going to be oriented to? Danger and negativity. And so the attack ads will do that. People will say, oh, attack ads don't affect me. And the data will show that attack ads do affect them. Then there's something called the sleeper effect. After a period of time, you forget the source of the message. You forget the context of the message, but you remember the message. And you, you always hear people say, I heard that such and so. I read that so and such. And if you ask them, really, where? They cannot answer you. They never can answer you. So, uh, you know, uh, we have a bird feeder outside. Uh, mm-hmm. And my wife said, you didn't feed the bird feeder. The birds are going to die. And I said, well, how do you know that? Oh, people have told me you have to feed them every day. I said, really? Oh. And then she's many people, lots of people. <laughs> of people. So, Those uh, people. Yeah, yeah. people. So I looked at them. There's a big office in Washington with the word them on the office door. They told me. <laughs> So uh, I, I uh, actually looked it up, and it turns out, you know, birds, if there's no food there, they'll go somewhere else. Yeah. They're not going to, the idea is, oh, they're dependent on the feeder, they get lazy, they go nowhere. I understand the logic, but it's not true. Um, but people repeat it. Uh, people repeated that Barack Obama uh, swore his, uh, his oath uh, of office on a Koran. Um, it's not true. It's ridiculous. Um, and, and if he did, I, I personally wouldn't care, but okay. Um, you can look at it. So how did anyone come to believe? Well, they heard it. And that's called the sleeper effect. So you get all of these messages and you go, oh, this person advertises, take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you start hearing stuff in advertising and you realize, oh, they're trying to sell me something. 
And then three months later, you say, you know, I heard that I'm really supposed to do this. And they have forgotten that they heard it by someone trying to sell it to them. Yeah. And off it goes. So in the in negative attack ads, you will hear that candidate A believes so and such or such and so. And uh, that's why they take all of these slogans and they exaggerate them. If you say, you know, um, uh, I, I think A is probably better than B. They go, ah, they hate B. They yeah. Terrible. And uh, how would how could you vote for someone who hates B? Uh, they they uh, they hate this person. They hate the, that organization, and so on. So so does the sleeper effect work better when it's a more emotional laden message originally than if it was a more, hey, vote for this candidate because we're going to provide you with these rational elements for whatever it is. Versus as you just said, you know, don't vote for B because they hate you know pie, apple pie, you know, the right. flag and everything else American. Yes. It's, it, it's a two part answer. I think to your question, one is you got to attract people's attention so that they recall stuff. Okay. Emotional messages are going to be more recalled than, uh, here's my chart and graph, which is another mistake politicians make. <laughs> As you can see, you know, it went up 22%. <laughs> last year it went, uh, only went up 17.7%. Uh, and by then you've slept and, and you don't really, but if they say something like advertisers know to do, 15 minutes will get you 15% or more. If you yeah. think about that, that makes no sense. You know, what, what does that think? It means it'll get you, what's 15%? Is it 50%? Is it 97%? It makes no, but you remember, oh yeah, 15, good. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get Geico now. And it works. So you, you need emotionality to attract someone's attention and then the sleeper effect. So it's not that you remember the sleeper effect is more effective. It's that you now recall you heard it more like in more likelihood. Okay. Well, and you were recommended to us by John Barge, who, uh, you know, has obviously done a lot of work on priming and various different things. How much, how much does uh, like people, uh, these messages that are being sent, are they, are they trying to prime us to some of the, the inherent motivations that we already have at, again at that unconscious level? Okay, so first let me say that John Barge is another one of my heroes. His research is incredible, and he's also a very nice person. Yeah, we, we would agree with you there. So on yes. both counts, <laughs> yes. So having having said that, um, what's your question now? Whether uh, yeah. so, you know, in, in this political sphere that's coming up, and in, in, in the advertising that they're doing, are, are they trying to add in any of these uh, primes, or you know, that that are going to be working on a you know, you talk about some of this looking for those alluding to pieces, but are they, they actively trying to, to prime our, our brains to be thinking about something? Are you asking me, do they know what they're doing? Uh, <laughs> on, on one level, yes. Yeah. Uh, on one level, or if it's just, you know, by circumstance of trial and error and these things work, which is sometimes, you know. Both. A guy named Frank Luntz, who works for the Republican Party, absolutely knows what he's doing. He understands it. He's smart. He's good at it. Uh, I think that a lot of them are just, they've learned from experience, what I call in the book, implicit learning. Hey, this mm -hmm. works, so uh, let's do it. Uh, and don't realize what they're doing. Uh, I did a study with, with Drew Weston way back, uh, I think in 2004. The the uh, Bush campaign back in uh, 2000, I think it was, or maybe it was 2004. I don't remember. The study came out in 2004. So he uh, his campaign ran an ad where they subliminally presented the word rats over an image of Al Gore, his opponent. And they, uh, 
they got caught. And the first thing they did was deny that they did it. And then people slowed the ad down. The media did. And there it was. So the second thing they did was say that this was artistic and, and inadvertent. They just divvied up the word Democrats into Democ and rats. And then when people said, come on, we're not that stupid, they said, well, subliminal doesn't work anyway, which begs the question as to why they did it. <laughs> so uh, you and I did a study. And what we did was we presented the word rats subliminally and then showed a picture of a, of a person uh, and said, this guy's thinking of running for office. What do you think of him? And uh, the word rats made people think more negatively of the guy. So there's one piece of data. It's published in a journal called Political Psychology. Then we did something that I think is more relevant politically to what you guys are talking about. Um, if you remember, Al Gore did not use Bill Clinton as, as a surrogate to campaign for him. And the logic was, oh, he'd been impeached. He cheated on his wife. No one likes him. And they got this from all of these surveys and self-reports. And Drew and I said, no, wait a second, uh, he's a two-term president. Uh, if he was next door, we'd be alone here and not present. No one would pay attention. If he was next door to you, you wouldn't be interviewing me. You'd be interviewing him. So how is it that he's bad? So we, we, we tried to talk to the Gore campaign. It wouldn't listen to us. But four years later, we had the technology to test it. And there was a guy named Gray Davis running, uh, he had a recall election in California. I don't know if you, if you remember. And uh, yeah. Bill Clinton yep. volunteered to campaign for him. And he said, no, nah, they don't like you. And same logic. Yep. But this time we were able to do a study. So a week before the election, online, we presented uh, to California voters uh, an image of Bill Clinton that was too quick for them to pick up. And then Gray Davis and said, hey, what do you think of this guy? And we, uh, or we presented just Gray Davis. So you had a control group, you had an experimental group. And uh, we asked the people with Dem Democrats, Republicans, or independents. Well, again, as I said, it's not magic. The Republicans didn't like Gray Davis and uh, they were negative towards him. And they were a little more negative towards him after Bill Clinton because they don't like Bill Clinton either. The Democrats were kind of neutralish towards Gray Davis, which I suspect was where his problem lay because you hated him, but you didn't love him. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you showed Bill Clinton eh, a little non-statistical change in the right direction. But the independents did a 180. They wow. really disliked Ray Davis. We showed them a picture of Bill Clinton that they didn't know they saw. So we triggered, we primed them with Bill Clinton. And, you know, Gray Davis is not so bad is, is how it came out. So what you what you have is if you're on the fence and I prime you with something, you know, the, the simple way of thinking about it is if you're hungry and I prime you with food, you know this, you walk by a bakery, you walk by a, 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 a supermarket, you're going to buy food. If you're not hungry, I don't care if I prime you or not. You're full. You're not interested. So if you're independent and I prime you with Bill Clinton, you go, I, I like Bill Clinton. Oh, this guy is like Bill. I like him, too. Yeah. Um, if you're a Republican, you're going to, oh, Bill Clinton, I hate him. This guy's with Bill Clinton, to hell with him too, and and so on, so on down the line. So the politicians know that, and that's why surrogates come out. I thought they had learned their lesson because in 2008, Barack Obama had Bill Clinton all over the place. Yeah, It worked for him, but they hadn't because in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton, she kind of knew the guy, I think, reasonably well, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she didn't use them. And it was for like, I, I don't know what her reasons were. I mean, you'd have to ask her. Maybe she'll be on your show. Uh, and I think it cost her. 
I mean, you know, he, he's worth a couple of states. He would have detracted, he would have attracted attention away from her. Uh, all of those things would be true. But if the idea is to win, he would have helped her. So there's an example of not understanding the unconscious. So do you think they didn't test? I mean, they, they could have run your test. They could have, they, they could have actually just tested it. Well, Tim, they don't run my tests. They run the standard surveys, which is how they got the last election wrong. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah. uh, most of the time those surveys work pretty well because you don't have these emotionally charged elections. The, the current candidate, the Donald Trump, whether you like him or don't like him, he stimulates a lot of affect. Yeah. And you better test for affect. If you're going to test for rationality and discussion and thinking, you're not going to capture what it is he communicates. I'll give you a quick example. Um, so uh, I, I teach, as you know, in a university and graduate students tend to be somewhat to the left of Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> Are they that bad these days? My uh, God. Well, whether you want to call it bad or not, yes. <laughs> okay. okay. So, so, uh, before the election, I, we were we were doing we did a study, and I can talk about that. But before the election, I, they were like uh, Trump, terrible, not going to win. No one thought he was going to win. I said, all right, let me put up a, a video. At the time, it was still the nomination process. Okay. So I put up Ted Cruz on a YouTube video, and they were snarling and cursing, and he's not a likable guy anyway. So okay, then I put up a video of Donald Trump, and they start laughing. They're like pointing and laughing. And I said, okay, you're laughing, you're smiling. You're not going to vote for him. I agree with that. Now imagine you're on the fence and you're laughing and smiling. Now you might vote for him. Ah. That's the reason he's got a shot. And, and you see it when he talks, people like shake their heads if they don't like him, but they're smiling very often. And if you do like him and you're smiling, you're going to vote for him. So you've got to measure things like that. You've got to measure affective reaction. You've got, you know, the, here's another statistic nobody knows. Since they've been doing this, uh, with one exception, the taller candidate for president has won every single time. And the exception was uh, George W. Bush versus Al Gore, and that was a disputed election. Mm -hmm. Other than that, the taller candidate won every single time. Maybe it's a coincidence. I don't think so. You look up to people. They're above you. You look down at people. They're below you. These things resonate in people's heads. Leaders, are, no one has a George Washington complex. You have a Napoleon complex. Mm. Little people are not supposed to aspire to power. Big people, well, naturally, they, they sit higher. You put a judge on a bench. These, yeah. I don't know that they know what they're doing, but they do it. Yeah, well, taller sales reps are more more successful than shorter sales. Well, reps and in and, and the number of CEOs that are above six feet is w well above what the average uh, should be within the United States. So you you look at that too. It's the taller people get promoted. Taller people, as Tim was saying, you have all of those again, little little pieces that are are operating at a as as you say at that unconscious level about how we're processing the information that we're viewing these people through and that's that's you know sending a certain color of of how we think about them um as as we're going through that yeah but Joel do you think that uh, we're going to uh, we're coming into there, there will be debates right we'll right. see we'll see Biden against Trump and we'll see if one is taller than the other in a meaningful way right? uh, do you think that that could is that going to be a, a uh, unconscious prime for us? Oh, yeah. It's going to be a factor. 
you know, if they stand next to each other, you know, what did Trump call Marco Rubio? Little Marco. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know that he, he has a kind of intuitive sense about these kinds of things. Um, and it mattered. After that, he, you couldn't think, oh, you, every time you looked at Rubio, it was, oh, look at a little guy, a little Rubio. And this is not good for me. I'm only 5'8". Um, <laughs> but yes, I think it will matter. And, you know, he towered over Hillary Clinton. He's 6'3". He's a big man. And uh, I don't know how tall uh, uh, Biden is. I don't think he's short, but I don't think he's 6'3 either. Uh, so I don't know. Yes, it will matter. How much yeah. it will matter is, you know, there are other things that matter too. Yeah. Uh, but that will definitely be effective. Well, and it'll be yeah. interesting too with if social distancing and that and that distance between them is is going to be greater, and maybe that that difference uh, in heights isn't necessarily as pronounced. So uh, lots of again, lots of factors go into how we think about these things. I I, I want to go back though because you talk about a really interesting facet, and and Tim and I have talked about this just working with businesses in the say do gap when people take surveys about what motivates them and various different pieces. And they always say, Oh, just pay me more money, various different things. And Tim and I have done a lot of work on, on incentives. And and we know from, you know, studies that, that have been done that that's not always the case. In fact, many times it's, it's non-cash things that are actually more motivational. Yet, if you ask people, those are, are the things that they will say. So what happens uh, why is it, um, in your opinion, that that people don't fill out these surveys in, in meaningful ways that are really reflective of some of the the actual actions that they will take? I think the answer is in the title of my book. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they don't know. I don't think they're lying. Yeah, I think that that they give the answer that they believe is true. Uh, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. So we mentioned David McClellan measuring achievement motivation. Achievement motivation uh, maybe is a bad term for it. What it is is a motive to do better than you did before. It's competition with yourself as opposed to competition with someone else. Mm -hmm. Such a person is not really suited for the corporate world where it's about status. It's about who has a nicer office, what your title is. Such a person is more suited, for example, to an entrepreneurial kind of a position. Uh, so you put that person in a corporate world and they're not going to be happy. They're not going to like it. What are they going to say? They're going to say, I want to succeed. I want to do well, but it's not going to work as well for them. So I, I think that, you know, we have societal values. We believe that we hold those societal values. You know, everyone is a nice person. Everyone cares about their fellow human beings. You're not going to find someone who says, you know, I hate others. They really suck. Um, it's all about me. Or if you give someone a prejudice survey, and, and in fact, they've done this. If you look from the 1930s or 40s to now, thank God prejudice is gone. It's disappeared. I'm very happy now. Uh, and, and I don't think that people are lying. It's just it was normative to act, to uh, hold certain views in the 30s and 40s. And it's not normative to hold them now, but we hold them anyway. Mm -hmm. I do a demonstration sometimes when I give talks uh, at children's movies. Take a look at children's movies. They are filled with biased types of associations. Mm. And, and uh, I, I could give you illustrations of them. And then every once in a while it leaks out. There was a cereal box came out last year that had a, uh, it was for corn pops or something. And all the corn pop characters in the cereal box were sliding down uh, and having fun into, into milk. But one was cleaning up and uh, had a, a cap on with headphones and happened to be darker than the other cereal pop. 
I doubt that the person who created it said, let us prime racism, let us foment this in children. It just was an unconscious association. I'm sure the person is embarrassed. I'm sure the company is embarrassed. I'm sure they say it was an innocent mistake. But why? And why does it always run that way? And, and why is the hero in a cartoon always have blue eyes? By the way, elephants don't have blue eyes, but Dumbo has blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and the other elephants don't have blue eyes. And, uh, you know, the, the, ma- the mane of the evil uh, lion in The Lion King is black. Yep. Uh, and uh, he speaks with a foreign accent, probably went to boarding school. Um, <laughs> he is the brother, right? You know, right. He's yeah. the brother who somehow speaks like, like uh, uh, Jeremy Irons or whoever the actor is. Yeah. yeah. The other ones speak like uh, Americans. Uh. And they're golden in color and he's darker in color. And the hyenas are darker in color. And I could go on and on. There's eight yeah. million examples like this. And I purpose. No, I was going to say, and kids pick it up. Yeah. So they watch yeah. it, and black is bad, and white is good, and and uh, men men uh, solve problems better than women, and uh, the Lion King should be a guy, and then people say, well, the, the lions, uh, in in fact, the male is the leader of the pride. I said, oh yeah, well that's true. Do they actually speak English? <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know that when uh, the head lion, the male lion, is killed the new male lion kills all the cubs. Didn't have to chase them away. Didn't have. So if you want reality, the story ends there. Simba gets killed. We're done. And uh, and Scar gets to lead the pack. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Going back to, to McClellan. And I know uh, in your book, you talk about this, this work about the separate motivational systems, you know, self attributed motives versus the implicit motives. And, 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 Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but but with the achievement motive, that's not one that is self self attributed, right? This is this is something that you have to that that to determine if you actually have that achievement motive. It's it's through other ways of looking at that. You're not necessarily saying that's my achievement motive. Um, being able to determine that yourself. Am I if if I gotten that right, or am I mistaken there? Well, where you're right is if you ask somebody, they they are just as likely to be incorrect about their achievement motive as they are to be correct. Technically, there's a zero correlation. It's just, okay. I don't know. So uh, there's, in, in this country and in this culture, you ask someone if they're achievement oriented, you're going to get a yes 90% of the time. Who's going to say, no, I, I kind of like being lazy and failing. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. Right, sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> Coronavirus is great. Uh, so, um, but you can ask questions like this. Do you like crossword puzzles? Personally, I hate them. Um, and But if you like crossword puzzles, you like maps, you like shortcuts, those are diagnostic of having high achievement motivation because you're solving problem. Mm. Achievement-motivated people like challenges, and they like moderate challenges because it tests them. So whereas some people might find it stressful, they find it exhilarating because they succeed at it if they work hard at it. That's achievement motivation. Now, do most people act that way? No. No, they don't. Uh, as opposed to say power motivation, I want to be in charge. Yeah. I want other people to look up to me or I want to have an, in, the positive side is I want to, excuse me, I want to have an impact on their lives for the better. Um, that's power motivation. Does anyone say, yeah, I like to be in charge and have power? No, listen to politicians. They want to serve us. So if they want to serve me, why do you have a title and a special car and a special jet and you know, have a special place to get your hair cut. Um, and I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that's what it is. 
Um, and if you, if you, if you have high power motivation, you'll fit in. If you have high, uh, another kind of motivation, achievement motivation, you may or may not fit in. Mm. But, uh, if you ask someone, they may or may not be correct. What percentage of stuff that's going on in the unconscious do you think never reaches the conscious state? That's a really good question. Um, what, what I would, I'd have to say before I answer that question that everything is a mix. Okay. There's nothing that goes on that isn't partly conscious. Um, now how much does it reach it? So, uh, you can't see me, but I'm talking to you and my hands are moving. So what the hell? What are you, you can't see my hands moving. So why are they moving? <laughs> because the part of my brain that controls speech is also connected to the part of my brain that controls motor activity. So it's moving. It, uh, you know, you had to build on something to get speech. And what the uh, evolution built on was motor activity to get speech because you move when you speak. Uh, so you're unconscious of that, but you're conscious of speaking. You know what you're saying. Uh, we, we hear each other. On the other hand, did you, you have a little man inside your head that looked at their sentences before you spoke them? No, they just came out of your mouth. Uh, and so that's unconscious too. Now, there are some things that remain unconscious forever, uh, which I think is what your question is, Tim. Uh, but it, but then the action is conscious. You just attribute it to something else. And there are other things that you think were totally conscious, but they actually have an unconscious component. One of the things I learned from doing this book, and I hope to communicate, is there's no such thing as a purely unconscious process, and there's no such thing as a purely conscious process, which, by the way, Freud came to like in 1923. <laughs> there, there, there's, oh, everything is a mix and it's just a question of the relative mix of it when I have a reaction of uh, liking someone and I don't know why that's more unconscious than conscious but I know I like them Yeah, I just don't know why we know for example since, since you guys do this stuff you know that tall people and attractive people have more positive qualities attributed to them but nobody says wow what a good looking guy what, a, what an attractive woman I bet you she's smart too. That's just an association that people have. Unless they cross a, a threshold that they're so good looking, now they have to be stupid. And again, that's 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 contextually wow. based, right? So wow. you're looking at that and you're going, there's all right, there's a point where they, they start gaining some of these attributes, and then there's a point where all of a sudden those those attributes go away. And it, it it's hard to be able to to put some real you know, parameters around it's going to be X and then it's going to be Y. And, and in between here, we're going to get, you know, these certain reactions. It's a, it's on a continuum. If, if I'm understanding you right. 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 And there's unconscious st other stuff going on, like envy. For example, if you, if you've heard of the actress, Hedy Lamar, mm -hmm. yeah, just absolutely gorgeous, called the most beautiful yeah. woman in the world at one point, she invented stuff. She invented things that, that the internet is based on. Look her up. And what they'll say is like, it's amazing. <laughs> wow, she she was smart too. Well, why not? You know, she so she got more gifts than most of us. But why why is why are the two negatively correlated? Was she supposed to be stupid because she was so attractive? Uh, and it's it's shocking that someone who looked as good as she does as she did is is also brilliant. Why not? You you have you have to look like a geek, and you see this in TV shows. There's a show called um, The Big Bang, I believe it's called. Yep. And all of the characters are brainy, and therefore they must be geeky. They can't possibly be socially sophisticated. They can't possibly be attractive. But the female lead, she can be attractive. She's a little ditzy. Yeah. 
So they're priming that in all of us, and and we buy it, our kids buy it, and we grow up believing it. So yes, there's a threshold that to a point, if you're attractive, you're smart. If you're too attractive, I don't want to hear how smart you are anymore because this is aggravating to me. Yeah. Um, I once had a, a patient, uh, it's long enough ago and I won't reveal much, but he was incredibly good looking. And he walks into my office for the first time and I looked at him and my first reaction was, screw you. <laughs> if I looked like you, I would rule the world. And it took a while for me to, you know, come off of that. And this is a person has feelings and thoughts and so on and so forth. Um, and that's how we react unconsciously. And, and the people like me who supposedly study the unconscious react that way too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the thing I think uh, is often we, we, we don't, Real, we don't necessarily attribute right that that even though we research this stuff and that we we understand it probably as good as anybody can, it doesn't mean that it doesn't impact us. You know, as 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 scientists, as behavioral you know people who who research this, just because we know these things doesn't mean that it still doesn't have that impact on us. And that's always a big piece that people go, oh well, you should be able to, to just, you know, overcome all those biases. And you go, no, I, I, I have them the same as you do. I wish. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I wish too. And hopefully it, it allows us to maybe examine ourselves a little bit more, but that's always, you know, it's usually after the fact and it's usually too late to, to stop what you're, you've been doing. So. Well, yeah. consciousness can override those things temporarily. That's an advantage of consciousness. So you yep. can, I know this about me. If I happen to be aware of it at the moment, I will override. But if you put stress on me or I'm tired or I didn't notice, I'm going to behave like I behave. Yeah. And uh, yeah. we have to know that. The advantage, I think, is when you say something to someone who believes this, they, they'll stop and consider it as opposed to, no, I, that can't possibly be true. So you tell someone, you know, you're biased too. No, no, not me. I'm not. Uh, well, you did X, Y, and Z. Well, the, you're, you're looking, you know, you're reading more into it than it was. It never happened. And uh, as opposed to, oh, let me let me think about that because I know that I behave unconsciously. I think that's an advantage he gives us. Yeah. Magic to it. Joel, what about, what do we know about the impact that music has on the unconscious? Uh, not a lot, but here's what we do know, that it has an affective, immediate affective reaction on people. It can cut through things and and just get to the gut emotion. We know what, what I notice, for example, I notice it now in my teenage kids, is they go to school and they can't remember anything that the teacher told them. But they can remember every word of a rap song. Uh, and they can remember. And there's a lot of words that go in those rap songs. And they go in. Yeah. And why do they remember it? Because we're built to remember that. If you go back in time before there was writing, uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, they were sung. Yeah. And they had a poetry to them, and that's how you remember things. I don't know why teachers don't realize that. I guess they don't want to get up in front of a class and sing about physics. But um, <laughs> if they did, the teachers would remember, the children would remember it better. Um, you remember things when, when it's poetic, you remember things when, when, it's, um, when it's musical. It hits a part of our brain that somehow uh, stays in memory, it hits a part of our brain that affectively resonates. I write in my book about uh, things being salient. It becomes salient. What's salient is what you remember. And that's that's a fuzzy, complex concept. But 
music is one of those things that's salient. You know that when you, if you hear a song and you're not aware that you're hearing it, it's kind of out of the corner of your ear, your mood changes, your memories start coming in a different way. It's re it really hits something primal. And I don't know how that is or why that is, but that it is, I do know. Yeah. So that, that leads me to how, uh, how do you deal with music and work? Do you listen to music while you work? I listen to music, but not when I work. Uh, I, I was telling you guys before before we began, I'm I'm an introvert that learned to pretend to be an extrovert. When I work, I need absolute silence and no distractions. My poor wife will come and say, Joel, I go, I, you can't see me. I lift my hand <laughs> and I say, you know, not now. And I'm not to be offended by that because I can't. And I work from midnight to three in the morning because no one will phone me. No one will phone me. But when... I'm not doing that. I do like to listen to music. It soothes me. It relaxes me. Um, my favorite music uh, is, is, are the blues. Uh, I'm not sure why, but I love the blues. Lately, I've been listening to older music. I think I'm starting to reminisce because I'm getting older. That's a normal uh, function. Also, I'm stuck in the house, and those bring back happier times. Like what? Give us uh, uh, any artists or songs or styles that, that come to mind. Sure. Uh, I've been listening a lot to the song yesterday, and, and I start to wonder, why am I? And because yesterday was better. I wasn't stuck in the house. There, there, weren't, there weren't people, you know, uh, fighting over masks and uh, these kind of device things going on. So I kind of like it. And um, that led me associated to listen to Beatle music, and that led me to back a certain period of my time. My favorite singer of all time is a guy named Sam Cooke. I yeah. don't know if you know. Okay, you do know. Uh, oh, yes. I, I can listen to Sam Cooke endlessly, so I'm listening to him. Then I start listening to the blues, uh, Lead Belly, B.B. Uh, King. It, it makes you, and again, you can't see me, I start rocking back and forth, which is soothing. It kind of makes me a baby again. Um, so those things work for me. I can exercise to music. I can just sit around and kind of daydream to music but I can't work with anything. I need absolute silence to work. Yeah, Tim and I have had this conversation and and I I can work with music. I uh, you know, it's just as background um for me. If Tim is like you, he he needs that silence um otherwise he cannot work. And we've yeah. asked this th with with many many of our our guests and it's it's an interesting piece because they fall into one of two camps. They fall into either of those camps and it's really interesting to to yeah. to hear your take. You say Sam Cooke, and I just think, man, just uh, bring it on home to That's me. That's my favorite that, song. You hear, oh, my God. That, just like There's a live version that he sung in Harlem. Get it on YouTube. It goes on for about five minutes. It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. We are going to put it in the show notes because that is absolutely one of my favorite songs. I remember hearing it for the first time in high school when uh, a, a guy was just walking through the halls and, and just, just – kind of singing he was he was he was just singing he was not a singer really per se but he was just singing it and i was like what is that he's like it's bringing on home to me it's sam cook i'm like what how how could i have lived 17 years without without being exposed to that because it was just it was like heaven he also had the greatest voice uh he's just he had every talent uh a singer should have he had and he had it uh in spades in excess it was just amazing he was just incredible and that is my favorite sam cook song Wow. 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 Well, Joel, thank you so much for being uh, 
with us today and, and, and being on Behavioral Grooves. We appreciate it. Your insight's fantastic. Um, and, and so thank you. This was really a lot of fun. Thank you very much. I didn't realize an hour had passed. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's amazing when, when that happens and, and we're just so appreciative of, of your insight and the work that you have done. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, and, uh, I had a great time. Uh, there's a hundred more things I wish we could talk about. So that means it was good. Well then we'll have to have you back. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Joel, have a free flowing discussion and talk about whatever else comes into our unconsciously denied brains. Unconsciously denied. So we're denying the unconscious. Well, some of us are. Some people are supposedly, which I think is a little surprising to me and maybe to you too, right? Yeah, because it's there. It's it's real. It is influencing us all the time, right? Mo- from the general research, most of our behaviors are driven by unconscious means, not by conscious means. Well, just put into just your thought process around this. When you are doing anything, are you consciously thinking how you're moving your hands? Are you consciously thinking about how your mouth is forming to form the words that you are saying? Think about all of the things that your body does, that your brain does, that you don't consciously think about. The vast majority of what we do, our heart beats every second, and we do not control that consciously at all. There are all sorts of those factors that go into this. And while those seem to be, you know, some of the internal kind of manifestations of our body, they happen into our kind of behaviors that we would more likely talk about as being consciously driven, but in fact, they are done uh, at an unconscious level and then we rationalize after the fact. Yeah, we are the best rationalizers. Oh, we are yeah. so good. I am I'm Captain Rationalization. <laughs> I, uh, I, Is that I, your I, new name? I, you could you could call me Skipper because I am so good at rationalizing things that I that I did uh, that were not rational, <laughs> that were not conscious, that were just you know, fly off the handle, not thinking about it happens all the time. Well, and I don't think you're alone. I think we, we all have, you know, I think, (laughs) I think we all do that. And this is the key piece is, well, understanding in and of itself won't change that, right? Understanding that we do that won't change that, but it may give us a bigger awareness of how those things influence us so that we can put structures or procedures or change the environment or understand that when these things happens that 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 we are more likely to rationalize them and maybe just maybe we can do better at that and we can say yep i did it don't know why sorry or put something <laughs> oh, in place to probably not sorry. have it do again yeah probably sorry right <laughs> probably sorry Yes, Dr. Nelson. Amen to that. I'll tell you, that, that, that's true. So what, what else did you want to groove on? I mean, there were so oh. many great things that Joel brought up. Could we spend just a minute on how our motivations are complex? No, they're right? not. <laughs> what are you talking? You, come on. 
Motivation. When, I'm hungry. I eat, you know, I'm tired. I sleep. What more is there? Exactly. And of course, you're never motivated by when when you're hungry. It would never happen that if you happen to smell a donut versus a, a muffin that you might be more persuaded to go for the donut than the muffin. That would never happen to you, right? <laughs> well, this is where you're talking some, you know, priming and unconscious influences on yeah. that behavior that we were just talking about. That this Mixing and matching a little bit there. Yeah. Deniers are out there saying, no, if I'm hungry for a muffin, I'm going to pick the muffin and a whiff of donut smell is not going to influence me two, three, five minutes later. Well, research proves that a little differently, I think. So yeah, a- absolutely. Okay, but really, the, uh, the I'm sorry, and I kind of got off track here. The motivation thing, I thought was interesting because he talked about Joel talked about the idea of getting a partner uh, involved in writing his book, mm-hmm. right? Because he had this idea that was that ended up being influenced by both intellectual pursuits and historical pursuits, right? To, to writing it, but he enlisted a partner. He got somebody else involved, and uh, and there's this aspect of interdisciplinary effort that strikes me that I, that I wanted to talk about and how important it is for us to think about when we're trying to solve a big problem, like writing a big book, it could be really helpful to have someone else involved. When you're making a big decision in the office, maybe having someone who is not in your department helping you make that decision might actually help bringing in a different perspective. Um, the, and, and this, this happens uh, in, in academia, like at the Social and Decision Sciences Department at Carnegie Mellon, they've got they've got people from mathematics and economics and psychology and astrophysics, yeah, an astrophysicist, <laughs> all all joining together in solving human behavioral problems. And I think that that's something that we're missing. We're missing the opportunity, especially in the business world, of of talking to the CFO about how might we deal with some motivational issues because the CFO is going to have some different perspectives and let's, let's bring in the marketing department and the sales department and get people talking together from their perspectives of expertise in order to build better models, better strategies, better, make better decisions. It goes back. So we just had a conversation with Amy Booker, right? And she was talking about everybody in, in product design you know, understanding that people have different motivations for why they're using a product in various different pieces. This is similar in that way of bringing in these different perspectives because everybody has a different motivation and bringing those different motivational perspectives in can provide a deeper and more holistic insight into the world and what we're doing, particularly from a business perspective. I think you nailed that. So, yeah. Well, uh, it, it, we've got a big distribution problem with distributing vaccines mm-hmm. to the, to people in the whole world. Behavioral science could add to that. MDs could add to that. It's not just just not just supply chain people, right? It's not just a logistics problem. There's there's a behavioral side to that that behavioral scientists could really add value to, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and there's an unconscious component of people taking those vaccines too, which is a really interesting piece uh, uh-huh. of what you know we were talking to with with Joel and in particular we talked a lot about polarization and vaccines have now taken on this aspect of political polarization 
uh, same thing we, he talked about mass. I mean, you know, we, we did this interview with Joel a long time ago, uh, and, and it just took a while for us to, to get it out here. But, you know, we were in the midst of, uh, this pandemic, which we still are. And just this idea of wearing a mask and why people are wearing masks and the underlying components of that get into a political discussion when that has nothing to do with it, but it is because there are some underlying emotional aspects of our tribal aspects of who we are, our self-identity and various different pieces of that. Yeah, he brought up the idea of just maybe responding with kindness rather than anger. Which is and, a really interesting piece. Right. We we miss that because we respond emotionally. Again, our unconscious at work. Like, hey, you're you're uh, offensive to me, so I have to respond back to you with, you know, with a big boom rather than thinking more softly. And uh what we were on a call last night where AJ Jacobs, the author of The Year of Living Biblically said something like, um, don't get furious, get curious. Yeah. Right. Right. So when, when we're confronted with these situations, maybe the best response isn't to just amp up our own anger, but to dial it back and think about, well, why is that person responding the way they're responding? Right. If you if you're really concerned about bridging gaps and trying to understand. It, and, and oftentimes that's not our motivation. Sometimes our motivation is to prove that we're right, but it, it's very unlikely that you are going to convert somebody uh, by being angry at them and convert their thinking, their belief system around something by you responding to uh, a slight or even anger with anger or another slight, like being different things. But if you start with kindness, right? that that is a way of disarming people and at a level where it is unexpected. It goes back to Kwame Christian when we talked with him and this the, the concept of curious compassion, right? And the, being curiously compa- compassionately curious and asking these questions with a genuine interest and trying to understand from their perspective. Again, we talked about different people of different motivations. And so trying to understand what those motivations are and not making assumptions about those motivations. That's one of the big things. And we didn't really talk about this, but there is that emotional response from the brain, which is what we did talk about. And that doesn't always get at, at really understanding the other person's perspective. Yeah. And the world would be not just an uninteresting place, but a very lonely place if we only surrounded ourselves with people who only thought and acted like us. Mm. It really would be much less interesting, much less fulfilling world. We have to have a variety of different perspectives. We're going to have a variety of different perspectives. So we have to learn how to live with them. But th- so this is is interesting because evolutionary, right? We we are kind of wired to surround ourselves with people who are like us. That's the safe thing. That's the, if, if I can have my tribe and I look out for the, the backs, uh, you know, look for the out for the people in my tribe and they look out for me, then that's good. And so those are the people that have the same worldview. This, they look the same. They have probably similar thinking processes to us. And so it, it is not a easy thing 
to go beyond that, to go outside of those boundaries and invite those different perspectives and to say, I need to be open to these different perspectives because it will enrich in my world. That is a difficult thing for many people to do. Some people do it really easily. Other people, it's really, really hard. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. And I think we need to make a concerted effort to do that. And I think that's a really key piece of, of what you're bringing up. So uh, Agreed. Those biases came into our DNA thousands, tens of thousands of years ago when we needed each other to stay safe. It, it, actually, to have a roof over our heads, to have food, to have mates that we could reproduce with. Today, we don't need that. We have a relatively safe world, right? That that our encounters with other people on the street can be they can be different from us, but we don't hit them or assault them or are worried about them assaulting us all the time just because they're different. I I would I really want to push us our current societies to get beyond some of our his, our DNA-based biases and start to build new routines, new habits, new DNA that are that's more trusting and more open and more willing to cooperate. Yeah, I don't think we're going to build new DNA, but I think we can. <laughs> we are all the time. Oh. It, it's happening. <laughs> it's influencing. Yeah, but we're not the, the Maybe not very evolutionary fast. factor of this, right? <laughs> we, we 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 aren't we aren't curing the population of people that don't think like this, either naturally or not naturally. So this is something no. that is going to have to happen through culture and through learning and and the expression of those DNA genes uh, through different experiences that we have, as opposed to uh, changing the DNA in and of itself. That being said. I, I I agree with you 100%. We need to move beyond and we need to try to figure out how we can all do that. But understand, which goes back into some of the political pieces of this, is that people have different aspects of how this is manifesting themselves, right? Is am I am I more fearful of the other or am I more embracing of the other? which can lead to a lot of differences in how you are looking at, you know, the, you know, in, in, in immigration, looking at, um, yeah. you know, what we think about from a social services perspective, all of those political aspects have that underlying, you know, can, can be traced back to some probably underlying differences in our belief and fear factors of, of uh, how we we look at the tribe, how about uh, how about the sleeper effect, Kurt? You, what did you think of the sleeper effect? So it's it, it's priming, right? It's fantastic. And you isn't don't, it? you know, I, I I don't. I'm not a big believer in priming. You know that we've. we've <laughs> oh wait. wait, maybe I am. Right. Yes, yes. I forget what about, socks. Yeah, I forgot yeah, what that. socks I, are you wearing? You know what? I, I'm I'm wearing the wrong socks today. I'm wearing these 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 Ohio state socks that Brian Ahern oh, has given us and, and no, gave me. In the past. Don't ever admit that on the air again. No. No. Sorry, Brian. Um, then they're not helping me today. Anyway, it's priming, right? And sleeper effect I thought was fantastic. It's this idea of, wow, that you can, you can take something from that you heard months ago that you may not have believed. And then all of a sudden, you know, three, two, three months go by and, 
dang, all of a sudden it's like it's part of your your memory and your belief system and you don't even know know why, right? It, it kind of right. relates back to the mere exposure effect, uh, going into confirmation bias on some of this stuff. So it's just really cool. There's an argument in the advertising world that uh, advertisers and the advertising agencies are saying advertising works. There's lots of great evidence out there. And there are some researchers who are doing research that is suggesting that the impact that advertising has is extremely small, mm. just almost immeasurably small. And I wonder if the researchers are actually looking at the very long-term effects, like the sleeper effect, on how advertising might be influencing, and not just not just weeks and months after we get exposed to something, but maybe years after we get exposed to something. Yeah, it, it is interesting, and in advertising has that old saying, right? right we know 50% of advertising works, we just don't know which 50%. <laughs> right. um, but to, to that degree... There, we we might depend on advertising too much, and and the influence that it has may be overblown. That is also stating to your pers- perspective here is that we don't really understand the long term impact of of these kind of things. I, I think it's interesting, and and I don't know, I don't have any backing up of this of, of specific research, but you got to think that Coke and Pepsi. Are, are looking at this and going, look, if we take advertising off in this market, what happens? And I think, you know, and again, I, maybe this is maybe this is just a misunderstanding on my part or a, a false belief that I'm holding on to that, wow, if, if Coke stops advertising up here and Pepsi continues to advertise, Pepsi's market share will go up and, and Coke's market share will go down. Now, that being said, um, you know, it, it, that's a tough thing to measure, particularly long term. It goes back into some of the work, um, you know, some of the the things around intrinsic and e- extrinsic motivation, and and the, the research that's now just recently going on, where they the old research showed or indicated that hey, if you use an extrinsic motivator on something that people are intrinsically motivated to do, then their intrinsic motivation drops, and that was proven in, in lots of different research, but it was looked at immediately after the extrinsic motivator had been applied in the very short term, day immediately day after, week after. But when you started looking at longer term effects of that, that decrease in intrinsic motivation disappeared. And in some cases, the baseline actually moved up so that an extrinsic motivator being applied to something that you're intrinsically motivated to do and say you're doing it at 10 times a week, whatever this would be, immediately after removing the extrinsic motivator, you might do it only eight times a week, but then you look out over the course of months and you might, then the new baseline might be 11 times a week that you're doing whatever that. Right, right. Yeah, so they're they're more like co-conspirators rather than being adversaries, which is is pretty cool. Um, What did you think about the achievement motivation versus power motivation stuff? Uh, You know, it's it's classic Dave McClellan, right? So achievement, power, various different pieces. I I loved how uh, 
Joel talked about this idea that, hey, for, when you think about achievement motivation, it really is this motive to do better than you did before. And when you're talking about power motivation, it's the, I want to be in charge and have people look up to me or want to have the positive side someone sees in me. So it's kind of an, an external uh, component of this. And so I think there's some really interesting components of that. And But it's uh it's it's one way of thinking about motivation and i i'm you know there's lots of different motivational theories out there um so so yeah 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 and how you know both of us have done a fair amount of work in goal setting and i, I was thinking you know achievement motivation really really speaks to goal setting for especially among people who lean that direction sales reps certainly lean more in the direction of achievement motivation Right on the, on the spectrum, they're certainly more complex than just that. But goal setting is a great way of taking advantage of achievement motivation in, yeah. in that regard. Yeah, and I think you can, so again, from an organizational perspective, understanding that people have, that motivation is complex, right? Going back to the very beginning of this conversation that we're having, motivation is complex. And in order to motivate somebody, you need to understand what drives that motivation? And as you said, this is a continuum. This is a component yeah. that is, somebody isn't just achievement motivated and somebody isn't just power motivated. You, you fall somewhere on that spectrum in this way, but you need to understand that from an organizational perspective and understand that this is not necessarily a conscious understanding of motivation. There is the unconscious work that goes beyond and so you have to tap into the right motivations with the right people at the right time. And the fact of the matter is, is that that salesperson may be achievement motivated in some contexts and more power motivated in other contexts. Exactly. The last thing I wanted to talk about <clears throat> for, for me in this grooving session was Joel said, there's no such thing as a purely conscious process. And there's no such thing as a purely unconscious process. And that was kind of mind-blowing for me because I really had a disposition that suggested that we had a lot of mix, that there was a lot of continuity. Again, if, if there's a spectrum that you could lean more you know that that it was but it was possible to be at, at the polar opposites that you could have a purely unconscious process or a purely conscious process. And Joel basically said, no, the, the research is pretty clear that we're always on a continuum. It might lean more one way or the other, but there's going to be a mix. And that was, that was fantastic. It was kind of mind bending in yeah. a wonderful way. Yeah. That relative mix of unconscious and conscious and various different pieces of it points to a different way of thinking about this to, to, to again, bring this back into how people can use this is really understanding that hey, there isn't just this subconscious thing working and that we target that. And then that there is this conscious aspect that, and we target that, is that they work in conjunction. They, they are interspersed. They are intertwined. They woven together, whatever you want to call it. And with that, you need to be aware that they're going to influence each other and how that happens, which again, goes back to priming and a lot of the priming work. Um, that is going on is looking at this and saying, so how do these subconscious 
aspects that we see influence our conscious behaviors and aspects and vice versa? How is that conscious goal that I have being then influencing some of the subconscious factors that are working underneath the fact, the, the, the level of, of understanding that we have? All right. With that, are we ready? Uh, do, do we go into our bonus track now? Do you think? I think we should. I think we should. You should hang out for just a sec and we'll do a bonus track. Hey, Groovers, this is Tim with our bonus track for the episode with Joel Weinberger. Our conversation with Joel focused on a wide range of very different ideas. And first, we started talking about the history of belief and how there are some people who are unconscious deniers, even when you point to experiences or logical fallacies that contradict that belief. Second, we discussed the polarization of our world and how elections, as he says, turn not on rational issues and discussions. They turn on emotional issues and associations that people have. And to overcome this, we need to look for what people are alluding to rather than just looking at when they're and what they're saying. We need to understand the deep emotional motivations of people to understand them and why we see the world so differently. He also stated that it is good when dealing with someone who holds a completely different perspective than you to disarm them with kindness, to respond in a way that isn't an attack, but instead is looking to clarify and to understand. We then talked about priming and the power of the subconscious on our behavior, but it works only to those things that we have already wanted to believe in. We will not be able to prime somebody who is conservative into being a liberal but we could prime somebody who is hungry to go for a donut as opposed to a muffin. Finally, we discussed motivation, in particular achievement motivation, or as Joel says, our desire to do better than we did before versus power achievement, which is the idea of wanting to be in charge and have people look up to us. We discussed how these are different and organizations need to be aware of those differences. Okay, for our groove idea for the week, we are going to build off of Joel's idea that we can disarm polarizing situations by not attacking or defending, but by being kind. This week, if you get into a conversation with somebody on the other side of the political aisle or have an emotional divide with, instead of responding with anger or attacking, just be kind. It isn't easy to be kind in those situations, but make an effort to give it a try. Reach out with an olive branch of kindness. And let us know how you do. Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of Behavioral Grooves. As always, we hope you stay safe, stay in touch, and find your groove this week. Mm -hmm.